No, I'm not going to dance. Oh, but I did sway. And I even got it sort of right once in a while. Thank you very much. You'll notice we have new banners this morning. I hope you like them. They, uh, I think, tie in well with the music that we brought this morning. And I agree with Diane that we are commanded to worship God with all that we are and all that we had. We're, have, we're, we're told to worship Him with many different types of instruments in the Psalms. As you look at the worship in the Old Testament, it was incredibly varied and incredibly wide in its dimensions. And so, uh, along with the beauty of the banners, which were helped to be designed by our art department and uh, colorscapes, and as well as the music this morning, I think we've entered into the life of Christ in a, in a new way. For some of us, an uncomfortable way. You'll remember two weeks ago, I talked about eternal life. And I said, it's like getting in that river that I told you about that I got in when I was 17 years old and it started to pull us down, not just stream, but it was a huge river, half a mile wide with barges going down it. And stepping into the life of Jesus Christ is a bit like that. It's not tame. It's not simple. It moves, it flows, it's powerful, it's deep, and it does go on forever. It's the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's eternal life. It's not just long life, it's deep life. And it's life that takes you, as uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament calls, this, calls it, on the monstrous venture of faith. The monstrous venture of faith. Stepping into eternal life is stepping into the life of the Father, the life of the Son, and the life of the Holy Spirit, the very life of God. Because uh, we have a, uh, a student living in our home from Bhutan, I've learned a lot about the Himalaya Mountains. And as I was trying to think about this uh, idea, trying to explain both the depth, the movement, the power, the flow of eternal life, that it's a personal power, I also became in touch through my study with the idea that it is more real, not less real, than anything we know. Staying on the shore, playing, dabbling your toes on the side, or sticking them in a, a pot of water, that, that would be a comparison of the difference between living your life apart from the flow of eternal life, God's life, and living it on your own. It would be like a, a young boy sitting at the foot of the Himalaya mountains in a small hut, making small mountains out of dirt and playing with little men and little horses around the mountains and packing up little piles of dirt and, and putting little uh, branches and things to look like trees. All the time his older brother is saying, come out of the hut, come out of the hut, look up, come out and look up. We're at the foot of the great, greatest mountains in the world. Let's go climb them. Let's, let's go run through the fields on them. But the, but the little boy stays in his home and, and he stays there creating his little mountains. And the brother keeps trying to coax him out. It was a bit like that when Jesus came as we were playing with our man-made shapes so small. Sure, they looked a bit like life. There was some resemblance between those little piles that we've created that we call life and what he wants us to experience, but not much of a direct equation. And so that's why John Calvin said, 
As soon as we've departed from Christ, it's in vain for us to seek a single drop of happiness. We'll find the angels and men to be dry, heaven to be empty, earth to be unproductive, in short, all things to be of no value. If we wish to be partakers in the gifts of God, that is life in any other way than through Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son so that whoever has faith in Him, whoever believes in Him, whoever trusts in Him will not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. God loved, God gave, and He wants us to experience eternal life, but there's a very important bridge between those two, and it's what I want to concentrate on today. It's probably, in my opinion, the key theme of the Gospel of John. John masterfully weaves, it depends on how you count them, eight to ten themes, so some would even number them as high as 13 or 14. They're introduced, most of them, in the first chapter. And these themes, life and light and faith and knowledge and abiding, weave throughout the Gospel of John, and yet all of them masterfully wrap around and weave around into a tapestry around the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at one of those themes. We've, we've, uh, I've reminded you of the first, the eternal life. But now we're going to look at the bridge. How do we tap in to that river? How do we get into the flow of the river of God's life? We do it through faith. Whoever might believe would have this eternal life. Now most of us think of belief as a fairly passive thing. I believe that this podium is here because I see it. It has no effect on my life. I believe that somebody designed the banners. I believe that they're hanging. I believe that they won't fall. But it doesn't have much to do with my life. It's, it's a fairly passive view of belief. It's more like beliefs. I have the belief that these won't fall. I have the belief that this is here. But the concept that John is choosing, he uses it, by the way, 98 times, this one word, to believe. 98 times in 21 chapters. He get the feeling he sort of wants to get a point across. And at the end of his book, in case we missed it, on about the 96th time, he says, now this is the reason I'm writing this book, so that you can put your faith in the name of the Son of God and by so doing, experience eternal life. That's why I wrote this entire book, in case you missed it, 98 times. Every single time he could have said, I have a belief that I wish you to adhere to. Or he could have said, I want you to put your trust in something. 98 times, not 20 of them, not 40 of them, not 60 of them, not 80 of them, not 90 of them, not 97 of them, all 98 times he uses the active verb. It's a habit John has. It's the same for his verb to love and the same for the two verbs to know that are used. They're always in the active form. John is trying to show us that faith in Jesus Christ is something not that just grips us, but that we dive into, that we engage with, like the music this morning. You had to make a decision. Some of us were able to do it. Others were not. That doesn't mean you're bad if you weren't, by the way. But you had to make a decision. Can I engage with this music? Can I experience and step out into the flow of something perhaps different? 98 times John says, 
Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Rely on Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. Seventy-four of those times are in the first 12 chapters, interestingly. It's as though in those first 12 chapters, John is groaning and working and trying to draw us into faith in Christ. And in the last number of chapters, it's as though he's talking to those already in who've already decided and he's telling them about the passion of our Lord, the death of our Lord, the resurrection of our Lord. So what is this faith? One scholar says it's a believing reliance on Jesus Christ. In fact, a frequent synonym this scholar says, is to come to Jesus. It's an active commitment to a person, in particular to Jesus, and it involves more than trust in Jesus or confidence in Him. It is an acceptance of Jesus and what He claims to be, a dedication of one's life to Him. And the commitment is not emotional only, but involves a willingness to respond to God's demands as they are presented in and by Jesus. It's an active commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. Another scholar says the word to believe, to have faith, to rely, never steps outside the realm of the personal. It's always engaging human creation with, with the divine, humans with Jesus, with the Son of God. Gerhard Kittel's Theological Dictionary, the New Testament, this phenomenal quote. This turning of man from himself is the primary meaning of faith. It is man's self-surrender, his turning to the invisible. It, meaning faith, has its roots in another world. You see, when Jesus lived by faith, he lived with his roots in a different world. I love that image. Because we think of roots going down. We say, are you going to put down roots here in Santa Barbara? And our answer ought to be, no, I'm going to put down roots in the kingdom of God. That's where my roots... They're supposed to go way down deeper than Santa Barbara. They're supposed to go way down deeper than your career. They're supposed to even go way down deeper than Westmont College. They're supposed to be rooted in another world, in an invisible world, at least partially invisible, in the kingdom of God itself. Other synonyms in the Bible are to hear Jesus, is to believe in Him. To believe in Him, to come to Him, to receive Him, to love Him. Those are synonyms that John uses throughout his gospel to weave the same theme that we're meant to be in union with Jesus Christ. And until we are, we aren't really experiencing life. We may think we are. We've got paper mache mountains and they look pretty good. We've painted them green and we've got a snow cap of white. But the Himalaya are right outside our home. Jesus lived by faith. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. His Father was invisible to him the way our Father is invisible to us, our, our Heavenly Father. He lived by faith. Jesus lived by the same faith you have to live by. He had to put his faith in the Garden of Gethsemane in the invisible. He had to say, not my will, but thine be done. That was an active engagement in the will of God. And he had to turn away from what he wanted at that point. In the sixth chapter of John, excuse me, in the sixth chapter of John, we have the feeding of the 5,000. We have 
the people wanting to take Jesus by force to be their king, and he rejects that and goes off and hides in the mountains because he does not want to be their earthly king. We have the disciples going out across the Sea of Galilee in their little boats, and we have a storm arising, and we have Jesus literally walking across the lake to them in the midst of the storm, and they were terrified. And in the midst of all that, we have a strange teaching. It starts by people coming back to Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000, after the storm, and saying, what are the works of God, Jesus? And Jesus said there's only one. There's not a whole lot of them. It's not works, it's work. There's one work, and it is, see if you can guess, to believe, to trust, to rely, to abandon yourself to, to become dependent on the one whom God has sent, that is Jesus Christ himself. John Calvin again says this about the verse. They had spoken of works, but Christ reminds them of one work, that is faith. Faith is called the only work of God because by means of it we possess Christ. Now, faith brings nothing to God, but on the contrary, places man before God as empty and poor so that he may be filled with Christ. And it bestows on man no other righteousness than that which he receives from Christ himself. There aren't works to do for God. First and foremost, there is one work, the work of putting your life in the hands of Jesus Christ, trusting him and abandoning some of your own views, some of your own desires, to the work of the kingdom in your life. Now, if that's true, if eternal life is the life of God, if God gave his son so that we could experience eternal life, and if the means to experiencing that is a radical abandonment or a courageous trust, as another Roman Catholic scholar put it, a courageous trust in Jesus then how do we grow in that trust? How does faith grow? I'm convinced it grows because in, uh, in uh, the Gospel of John we see it grow. Remember when Jesus changed the water into wine in the second chapter of John? His first sign, it says his disciples believed in him. They had faith in him. They trusted him. And yet they didn't trust him perfectly, did they? Because later on they stumbled and fell. Later on, in fact, the very passage in John 6 we, we mentioned before, Jesus said earlier, well, what, how can we feed all these people? Uh, why don't you guys feed these people? And they didn't know what to do. Finally, Andrew said, well, there's a kid with a lunch, and I, but I don't know. They didn't just say, oh, we can do this. We'll trust God for it. Their faith hadn't grown that far, and yet they had faith. It started with that kind of faith. In John 3, it says there were people who believed in Jesus because of the signs he was doing. In fact, Nicodemus was probably one of those, the ruler who came to Jesus by night. He probably, in John's gospel, was one of those who believed because of the signs. But he didn't believe much, did he? Because Jesus said, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand the things I'm talking about. You have to be completely born anew, born from above, become like a little child in a sense, as the synoptics put it. So those people believed, but they still had to grow. 
The disciples grew in their faith, as we're told throughout, and yet when uh, they saw Jesus walking on the water, what was their response? They were scared out of their wits. And they said, whoever can this be in the synoptics? In Gethsemane, they fell asleep. In the courtyard, Peter denied Jesus with cursing. And yet he believed in Jesus. And on the Emmaus Road, they didn't recognize him. And when the women told them that Jesus had raised from the dead, they, they failed to believe it. They failed even though they had faith. And when the risen Christ met them, their faith grew to a much more complete stage. But they had faith all along. So faith grows. There's a starting point for it when there's a decision, but then there's a growth process, and you're either growing in your faith or it's, it's, it's beginning to atrophy. It's like a muscle. If anybody's had their arm in a cast for two or three months, you realize how serious atrophy is. If you don't use that muscle, you've got to go to a physical therapist, and they hurt you. Some of you want to be physical therapists to help people. I just want to tell you, you're going to have to hurt them to help them. You have to be kind of mean because it's in their best interest. If we don't exercise those muscles, they atrophy, and then they don't work, and faith is like that. How do we exercise it? How do we grow? I want to suggest three ways. There are many more. This is just the tip of the iceberg. First, through increasing our knowledge of God, ourself, and our world. If you think of Jesus as sort of a vanilla person who just wants you to color inside the lines, then you will have a faith in someone that is really not Jesus. What needs correction for your faith to grow? Part of what needs correction is your picture of Jesus. It's not the biblical account. We need more knowledge about Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the movement of God throughout history. We don't need less. We, ch we study church history here at Westmont. Why is that? Because we want to learn where people have had a distorted view of God and where people have had a more accurate view of God. We want to learn from the positive and from the negative. We want to find and sift through and discover that which is true and commit ourselves to it. So one way to grow in faith is to grow in knowledge. In fact, something I just learned this last week in my studies on the Gospel of John is that when John uses two different words for knowledge in, in his Gospel, he always uses the verbal form, as I mentioned, the active form. And several scholars are suggesting that that word to know, at least in the Gospel of John, is almost interchangeable with the word to have faith and trust. That makes sense when you think about it. In the Old Testament, they trusted in God. Why? Because he was trustworthy. Everything they knew about him, they'd come to know about him, they found to be trustworthy, and therefore they put their trust in him. So we grow in our faith through knowledge. How do we grow in our knowledge? Well, one way is to put yourself in a position where you are studying yourself, and another way is to put yourself in a position where you are being taught regularly. Outside of your own experience. I'll say more on that in the second point. The second point is that we grow in our faith not only through a growth in knowledge, but through being around people who model for us in their own lives, in their knowledge and in their actions, the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of human beings. 
One of the biggest problems you who are students here this morning have is that you are living for these four years in a ghetto. It's a peer ghetto. I work here for 11 years. I come back and nobody ages. It's like living in the fountain of youth. I assume I don't either. You live in a pure ghetto. Now, there's some wonderful things about that. You have a common task. You have common views. You have common experience. There's a bonding, a camaraderie, a warmth. But there's a very limited perspective. You basically have the perspective, 1,200 of them, of a 17 to 23-year-old person. And there's nothing wrong with that perspective. It's just that it's very limited. So you don't get to hear very often the perspective of someone who's been through a divorce or who's had cancer, or who's suffered financial ruin, or whose child has died, or who's tried to hold a marriage together for 55 years. You just don't have the benefit of that in a peer ghetto. You need to be around people who are older, hopefully some of them wiser, and people who are willing to invest in you. In my early life in Christ, I met Jesus when I was 17 years old, and when I was 18 and went to the University of Denver, which was a very secular university, I decided I have to find some people who believe what I believe or I'm going to die. And I found a little church. It was St. James Presbyterian Church in Littleton, Colorado. And for 13 years, I invested my life there. I was baptized there. I sat under the teaching of Howard Shoulders and Les Avery for 13 years. I worked with the youth, I taught Sunday school, I raised my children there to a great extent until we moved here. And my roots were sunk deeper into another world. Not the world of St. James, though they were rooted there too, but into the kingdom of God. By being with people different than myself, older than myself, who had different experiences. My son called me about four weeks ago, he got married this summer. They have a baby on the way. He's a junior in college at Willamette University. He's 21 years old. His wife is 23. They're fabulous. I love them to pieces. And he said, Dad, I went to Uganda for a year, which he did before he went to college, to decide whether I should trust in Jesus Christ. And I've decided to do that. But how do I grow? And Linda and I, my wife and I, thought, how, what at this point in particular in their young lives and their young faith and their beginning family and their situation, what would be the most important thing? And we said, you need to find a church. It's really simple. You need to find a group of people that are broader than you, that, that are older than you, that are some of them younger than you. You need to find grandmothers and uncles and aunts and parent figures who have been walking with Jesus Christ for a while. And you need a teacher who can teach the scriptures. And you need to do that to root yourself into that community, but more importantly and deeply, to root yourself into the deeper kingdom of God, the family of Jesus. And you do that the way I just suggested. Well, they did that. Merlin, call, I mean, uh, Chris Call, excuse me, Chris. Chris, our assistant to the president, lived in the same town they lived in, so he told me about a church. And Jason and Christy have been going to it. And just last week they called and they said, this is wonderful. This little old couple took us out to lunch afterwards. And they're wonderful. He's an insurance agent and they're grandparents of, you know, like 13 kid, grandchildren. And they go to the prison 
They go to the, they live in this fairly nice middle class house, very nice middle class house, and, and they, but they go spend their time in the prison preaching and teaching the gospel. You don't find that when you're in a pure ghetto. They were deepened by that model of, of those two wonderful people. The third point I'm going to have to leave till next, next time we're together. Well, I'll tell you what it is, and then I'll explain it. The third point, we learn through knowledge, we grow through knowledge, we grow through modeling, and we grow through practice. You can't just learn things about Jesus and grow in your faith. You have to put them into practice. He said it this way. If you come to me, hold on for your books, you'll get them in a minute. If you come to me, hear my words, and put them into practice, you will be like the wise person who built their house on the rock. If you come to me, hear my words, and put them into practice. So if you want to get into that river, let me close with this quote from Luther who tells us how to do it. From two sermons he preached in 1530. Speaking about John 6, 28 through 30, the work of God for you is to trust in the one whom he has sent. Listen to this phenomenal two paragraphs. This answer, the answer was, there's only one work, it's to trust in the one whom God has sent, Jesus Christ. This answer disrupted and upset everything. Like a thunderclap, it laid low all forms of self-righteousness. And it spread another work before us, far beyond us and above us. In it, God declares, if you want to serve me, you must believe in him, Jesus, whom I have sent. You cannot do otherwise. This is my resolve and decree. And then Luther adds this wonderful closing. I know of no other work, no other service than faith in Christ. Accept the Son of God, whom he has sent. Give ear to him. Adhere to 